Our students are not with us this morning. As a matter of fact, there are 40 some odd people from ECN who are normally here who are not on campus this morning because they're participating in an event called TNT. Now, when you hear TNT, you probably think of, was it ACDC that wrote the song? Yeah, that's not the same thing, okay? What we're talking about this morning is an event that we coined, or actually just kind of stole the term from, Top Nazarene Talent. This event be, uh, began back in the, uh, the mid-80s, if I'm not mistaken. It has grown immensely. There are about 1,500 students on the campus of Trevecca Nazarene University in downtown Nashville this weekend. They are competing against each other in everything from Bible quizzing to basketball. Uh, as a matter of fact, my kids have played in basketball games and flag football games. Carly played on the, um, on the girls' flag football team. She played on the volleyball team. We've got students who are doing all sorts of things. And it's been an event that has been a lot of fun. But, you know, that event every year starts with this big worship service. It always takes place at whatever kind of the host location is. Now, I say host location because Trevecca's always been the, the hub of the event. But that opening ceremony has been in a lot of different places as we have work to make that event very, very uh, good for our students. And also as the event has grown, uh, we've seen numbers in that event. You know, there are 1,500 registered for the event. There's probably 2,000 people in Nashville, which is about as high as we've seen. We've had some events that were more of that of total impact, but you're talking about a, a lot of Nazarenes coming in for this one event. A lot of times that opening ceremony has taken place in uh, places like, oh, there was a while we were staying at the Gaylord Opryland. Uh, we were actually able to be in the Opry House for the opening ceremonies. Pretty cool to be in worship in the Opry House, right? Uh, for a little while, it was at Christ Church. If you've ever been on Christ Church, it's kind of down in the Brentwood area. They had an auditorium that was large enough to house that entire event. When it's really hard to find a place to seat 1,700, 1,900, 2,000 people. There's just not that many options unless you want to go to the Bridgestone. And quite honestly, if you only have 2,000 people at your event, you can't afford the arena downtown. You know, you're kind of stuck in that no man's land. So. We've been in places as well. I'm trying to think of some of the others. We've been on Trevecca's campus and one of a couple of different places. Those were very, very difficult because we had to be restricted with how many people we could have inside each room. Uh, we went to another one as well. We had one in the bottom of the Opryland Convention Center. I remember doing that. Uh, it was a, a setup in the round for that opening worship service. But we bring students in, and one of the first things they do is gather to worship and praise God for the gifts they've been given. That sets tone for the event. Amen? It sets tone for kind of what they're there for. Matter of fact, the thrust for that event is from God and for God. That we receive these events from God and it's for God. Well, one of the places that we've housed that opening ceremony is a place called the Ryman. Ever been there? It, it, if, you're, if you're from the Nashville area, it may not be as much as some people who are not from here who have heard of the historic Ryman. Now, you may understand fully some of the uh, musical significance and some of the really, really amazing things about it. To me, when I see the Ryman, and stick with me for a little bit because I don't want to ruffle your feathers too much. When I see the Ryman, I see a great tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy is really what it is. You know, this next week, the Ryman will host Ali Wong, Fortune Feimster, and the Kid Rock Comedy Tour. Could not be further from what the Ryman was created to do. You do know where the Ryman came from, right? A guy by the name of Thomas Green Ryman. Uh, born in, let me make sure I get his, his uh, born on date correct here. Uh, born in 1841, a very poor individual. Thomas Green Ryman began his life as a young man fishing the river of the Cumberland River uh, t trying to take care of his widow mother. Obviously, from that part of the story, you recognize life didn't deal him a very, very fair hand. 
As a matter of fact, in fishing on the Cumberland River and trying to take care of his family, he did so and became fairly profitable to be a fisherman. He ended up having a couple of different boats, some say several boats, but Thomas Ryman was there. He was about 20 years old when Civil War uh, broke out and became real. And so in his mid-20s, he was still operating, uh, not necessarily on one side or the other. He really navigated the middle of the road, or better yet, middle of the river in this regard, because he served both Union and Confederate troops. If people needed a transport on the river, he would serve either side, and he became a kind of not... He wasn't punished by either side because he was a resource to get things or people across or up or down. And so using his fishing boats, he actually started to begin to be quite wealthy. Wealthy enough that during the Civil War, he bought his first steamboat. Folks, you got to think about what it takes to go from a fisherman to buying a steamboat, all right? The man began to continue to make strides in his own wealth and his own career. Over the next several years, at his height, he owned 35 steamboats running up and down the Cumberland River. Amazing. Like, you're talking about a guy who began as a fisherman trying to take care of his widowed mother, who now owns 35 steamboats. As a matter of fact, he made an incredible living. If you're going to make an incredible living in this world, you may not like the realities of this, but history doesn't necessarily care about your feelings. We need to be reminded of that often, by the way, okay? And history doesn't care about your feelings because here's the reality. The man made a killing off of serving alcohol, and making sure there were plenty of women on those boats. Let's just look at reality. This is, and gambling, exactly right. Hadn't gotten there yet, but absolutely what was taking place. River boats going up and down, serving the needs of people. When you define yourself, in, as Ryman did, as a man who lives off of the sinfulness of the world, Another one, I guess this is just one of those mornings that, that I'm, I'm going to uh, alienate some folks, and, and I've made more peace with that recently. In the reality of the sinfulness of the use of women, alcohol, and gambling, and the way that those things were being accomplished, the way those things were being used, who would be the greatest antagonist and the greatest problem in Thomas Green Ryman's life? The preachers coming to town. Preachers showing up telling folks they need to put that bottle down and get their lives straightened out. They need to quit chasing women, get their lives straightened out. They need to quit gambling away everything they have and take care of their family and their kids and quit letting these addictions overrun their lives. And so these preachers are showing up in Nashville. One by the name of, of Sam Jones is preaching in Nashville and these great tent revivals that were taking place in, the, in this part of the country. And, and as those revivals were taking place, this man's trying to make a living running boats up and down the river and, and doing so with all of the, the women and the, and the gambling and the, and the alcohol and all that. And these guys were the antagonists that were, that were hurting his business. So you know what Mr. Ryman did? He paid his boat operators at night when they weren't running to get off the boat, go into Nashville, Tennessee, and heckle the preachers. Stand on the corners, make fun of them, make jokes, try to tear up what's going on inside those tent revivals. As a matter of fact, he paid a pretty good wage to folks. They would go in and heckle the preachers, so much so that Thomas Green Ryman gets off his boat one night because he hears of this one preacher that's coming to town to preach in this, uh, in this revival service. He hears about this one man that is known, and he knows, like, if I, can, if I can tear this man up and mess him up, boy, will it do well for me. And so he shows up. Sam Jones is preaching, and he begins to heckle Sam Jones. But as he shows up, the story is told by Thomas Green Ryman that as he shows up to begin heckling, something started stirring inside his heart that he couldn't describe. Thomas Green Ryman gave his heart to the Lord after showing up to heckle the preacher who was hurting his business. Folks, you don't talk about Thomas Green Ryman after that experience 
goes up to Sam Jones after hearing him preach and changing his life around and says, I feel compelled to respond. I'm tired of your preachers coming and preaching in tents, so it's not going to be the case anymore. I'm going to build, I'm going to build an, an event center. I'm going to build a location. I'm going to build a location that the traveling preachers have somewhere solid to come preach so we don't have to worry about the rains and all the chaos. And so in 14 years, and $100,000 in his time frame, 14 years and $100,000 out of his pocket, he builds the Ryman Auditorium. Something a little bit more interesting. It wasn't exactly known as the Ryman Auditorium. It was known as the Union Gospel Tabernacle. Preachers from all over. Preachers that, if you study the history of great revivals, preachers of names that you might recognize coming through and preaching at the Union Gospel Tabernacle. As a matter of fact, his relationship with Sam Jones continues so much so that years later, when Thomas Ryman dies, guess who's preaching his funeral? And guess where they're preaching it? At the funeral, Sam Jones pitches that the Union Gospel Tabernacle should be renamed as the Ryman Auditorium. It passes almost unanimously in that process, and we've known it as the Ryman Auditorium ever since. And in the next seven days, it will host the vile, the vulgar, and the sinful. Some of you say, ho, ho, preacher, we're not supposed to judge. Ho, ho, you're wrong. I'm not judging whether or not someone's going to heaven or hell because that's exactly what, they, what the Bible teaches us not to do. But I'm telling you this, as Jesus Christ did and calls us to, when we see sinfulness taking place in the world around us, we are not to stick our heads in the sands and say, oh, hands off, I can't say that that's wrong. Folks, what's taking place inside the Ryman today is leading people down the roads toward hell. Not what it was designed to do. It's a great tragedy in the story. So when I see the Ryman and I drive by and I see the signs, it breaks my heart because I recognize not that some good things don't still happen there, but it's a long way from the Union Gospel Tabernacle that it began as. It's not the only time in our history that we see these things take place. You look back at some of these great tragedies of things that have taken place. Another one starts back way before this one. We go a bit further back in our history. Shortly after the American Revolution, many of you remember that taking place, 7, 18, uh, April 1775 to somewhere September of 1783, officially signed uh, the, the Treaty of Paris, if I'm not mistaken, to make that end. Now, fighting ended somewhere in 1782, but regardless, as that took place, as the American Revolutionary War took place and ended, we tell the story in, in the history books today, well, we don't tell them history books, we tell it based on history of what's taken place of like coming here for religious freedom. 10 to 12 years later, people like Thomas Asbury, remember the name? Great Methodist preacher. Who could, he says he arrives in the U.S. to start doing evangelism and spreading the gospel in this new world. And he says that when he arrived, he found the American people, especially on the frontier, very deprived of religion. One of his statements was, he showed up and found that only one in a hundred men that he would encounter had any amount of religion to them whatsoever. Another Presbyterian missionary by the name of Andrew Fulton says he arrived in Nashville, which I think is another pointed thing being only an hour and a half from here, arrived in Nashville in the late 1700s and found very few religious people. You see, what they found were not men who were going to church on Sundays or leading their family in prayer or people who were doing things of a religious nature. He found folks that were wrapped up in things like money grabbing, land grabbing, and fighting for acquisition. 
And when you find people who are fighting to acquire and to, and to fight to, to, to grab their own lands, whether they're fighting with each other or they're fighting with Native Americans or just the fighting in general, the stories that the, uh, that the early American evangelists talk about is not something of, of great people going across the, the United States with their Bibles in hand proclaiming the news of Jesus. No, they were going across the country trying to grab what land they could. Matter of fact, folks, Kentucky was not known as a great place of peace. As a matter of fact, it was known in the South as one of those horrible places of rough frontier life. And some of these evangelists show up in that place and they begin to cry out to God that they need revival. They need, they need God to do something amazing in their, in their life. And they need to see people come to know Jesus because what they see in the world around them are the things of, of selfishness and the things of personal drive. They cry out and they begin to cry out for the Holy Spirit to do something amazing. A guy by the name of John McGee, who was a, uh, a Methodist preacher in a Presbyterian service called a communion. A communion would be today what we might call a, an old school revival. John McGee is in this service and they're preaching and they're, and they're asking God to do something amazing. And the story by John McGee is told that he hears someone in the back shouting out and it's a woman's voice. And so he's worried about her and he begins to go her direction. I find this intriguing. A fellow minister of the Presbyterian church comes up beside him and cautions him and says, brother, the Presbyterian church is not going to condone emotionalism. We're not going to go along with this. What you hear is screaming in the back is not someone who is distraught or needs to be saved, needs to be you know, uh, provided for. It is someone who is falling into the traps in their world of emotionalism. John McGee says these words, I turn to go back. See, he was headed towards this woman that he heard shouting toward the back of the auditorium. I turned to go back where I came from and was near falling. The power of God was strong upon me. I turned again, and I love this part. To turn again would be to go back towards this woman. Losing sight of the fear of man, I went through the house shouting and exhorting our God. Place yourself here for just a moment. And what, what be began as a moment of recognizing the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives led that within a few short months, the Cane, the Cane Ridge Revival Services break out and there are stories and documentation of 20,000 people being on site for these revival services. 20,000. You all, there's 8,500 people in Houston County right now. Okay? This is revival services that would be greater than the Irish event we just had this past March. You understand, like, you're talking about that many people showing up from all over, riding buggies and carts, and they're showing up at this place, and they named this place the Cane Ridge Revival House. And the incredible thing is, you can still go to the Cane Ridge Revival House today. Anybody been there by some wild chance? Anybody been there? Maybe by chance. Up in Kentucky, it's about 250 miles from here. If you did, you had to pay $4.50 because they built a building over the top of it and turned it into a museum because they don't meet for worship anymore, you see. It's a relic of the past, of history. Start asking you the question, what in the world happened? You look back at these places, and not that places become, we talked last week about presence of God means way more than the place itself, but sometimes those two things associate with each other, and my question is, what happened to the Ryman? What happened to the Cane Ridge Revival House? You have to pay an entry to get in there to watch a show now. What happened? I think they forgot how to hit a baseball. I got to spend some time in a batting cage with a couple of students. Matter of fact, one of them's in our auditorium right now. It's pretty fun. Going back to days of past and when I remember growing up and playing the game. There's a, there's a lesson to be learned when it comes to hitting a baseball or a softball or, or even a golf ball. 
you can go to all of the mechanics classes you want. You can do all the things and, and have the right uh, uh, turn of your hips and the releasing of hands and the extending of arms. You can do all of the mechanics of a baseball swing well or a softball swing well. But there's one detail that if you miss, if you don't, if you don't keep this one detail in focus, you will not hit that ball very well at all. Anybody know what that is? Keep your... If you go take a motorcycle class today, one of the first things they'll teach you in motorcycle classes to learn how to drive a motorcycle is that your bike will go where your eyes go. If you're riding down the road and you see a pothole, what's the worst thing you can do? Look at the pothole. Because if you do, you will drag yourself. You will unintentionally drag, push that wheel, or not wheel, but pushing those handlebars just a little bit off to the side. And what you're looking at, you will naturally, your mind and your eyes and your body is tied together. And you will take your, you will hit that pothole. Do you know why state troopers and police officers get hit on the side of the road year after year after year? Flashing lights, people just can't look away from it. And so by looking at the flashing blue lights, they steer that direction slowly but surely. Ended up hitting innocent officers, hitting people who were just getting pulled over for a speeding ticket, and now their problem is incredibly, incredibly worse. Folks, let me tell you something this morning. The reason the Ryman Auditorium is a tragedy, the reason that the, that the, the gospel tabernacle is a tragedy, is because if you don't keep your eyes focused on where you want to go, you will never hit the target. Or you'll hit a target, but unfortunately it's not what you, what you should have been trying to hit. You'll always hit where your eyes are going. You may not, you have to set your eyes in the right direction. So my question for you this morning, as we think about us in the, as the church post-Easter going into the rest of this year, then how might we look back at ourselves in a, as, a, as, a, as a group of believers and ask the question, then where did we begin and where might we need to look back at to make sure we keep our focus? And so finally, after sharing stories with you, I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If we're going to go back and look at where the church began and how things started, well then we might as well this morning go back to one of the passages that defines it. And so Acts chapter 2, it's going to be on the screen in front of you. You've been sitting for a while if you're here in-house, and so I understand probably getting a bit comfortable. Let's go ahead and stand up this morning so that we stay attentive. There you go. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The beginning, really, the beginning of where the church as we know it today began. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. I want you to make sure you note that little asterisk, that little A. We'll talk about it in a minute. To speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who were speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and the Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. God, we come before you this morning looking back at a pivotal starting point for us as believers. God, we recognize the first and foremost as being a believer is in the nature of Jesus Christ. 
But God, then as we move forward, we recognize that in order to, to be who You've called us to be and to live as You've called us to live, we have this story told of when the Holy Spirit descended in a very real and active way. Help us this morning to look back at this story to recognize where our roots come from and where we must return. This is your son's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. There are a couple of things here specifically that we need to make sure we recognize. I told you as we were reading through this passage a moment ago that we would need to make note of certain portions of it. I can't imagine what it was like to be a part of this festivity that's taking place. You're talking about the festival of, of Pentecost, all right? Now, this follows after the Passover. And as a matter of fact, as you're going in the calendar year, people talk about how big of a deal the Passover was, but they speak of this Pentecost celebration as if it were even bigger because the Pentecost also in, associates the, the festival of weeks, all right, where they celebrate the agriculture and the, and the harvest and those sorts of things. And so it's believed that, that the festival that's taking place when all of this was going on, was something that would have brought people in from the surrounding areas from all over. As a matter of fact, they're expecting, and not just expecting, they're noting in the passage that we read that there were people from all over the place who were coming in to be a part of it. Now, one of the things that you read is that they most of them had this one connection. They had some level of understanding of Jews, even those from Rome, right? Jewish or from Judaism, as we read in this. So you start reading about these people that are coming together, and then in the story, there's this moment where where the Holy Spirit descends on these that were leaders in this section. And when it descends, it says that, that they began to speak about the nature of who God is and began to proclaim who God was. And, and then we hear about them speaking in tongues. Now, the thing I think that needs to be pointed out here, and this will be one that, you know, you want to have conversations with me later on, Nazarene at gmail.com. If you're on the radio, ECN radio response at gmail.com. You're welcome to continue in this dialogue. I, I need you to know that this happening was not one that was set in order to define the nature of how we communicate with God or each other. There's a lot of folks that define like how God communicates with us and how the Spirit of God moves as being this moment that happened in this part of the story and all of a sudden this needs to be the, the new way that God communicates with us. And folks, it's just not biblically accurate when you look at the way the New Testament operated. As a matter of fact, when it comes to speaking in tongues, Paul himself cautioned against it. Again, you don't like what I have to say, you're welcome to kind of have, have the conversation with me. I won't shy away from it. But when we read this story, I need you to know that God is doing something that is absolutely amazing in this moment. And please stay focused on, on the intentionality and what does this mean? Did you understand in that last verse that we read, or next to last technically, in verse 12, people are asking, what does this mean? And let me tell you this morning what this means. It is communicating the nature of who God is in a way that hadn't been communicated before. As a matter of fact, when these people joined from all over the place, they all had something in common. They, granted, they were there and, and had this in common. They were there for the, the festival, for the festival of weeks or for celebrating Pentecost. And when they're celebrating that, they do have that in common. But even more so, folks, these who had gathered from all over did not show up with 13 to 15 different languages and no one knew how to talk to anyone. That's not the picture you need to create. Better, the picture that you need to create is the vast majority of them all spoke Aramaic. And those who didn't would have also spoken Greek. Folks, you need to know the miracle that took place at Pentecost in this story where everyone hears God speaking to them in their own native tongue was absolutely unnecessary. It wasn't needed. The disciples didn't need to walk out and have some miracle performed so that people could hear the goodness of God proclaimed. They had the language of commerce and it could have been done just by them using one of two languages and likely just by using Greek. So what does that communicate? What does this mean? Let's go back to that question. It means that God 
excessively, abundantly, and overwhelmingly wants to communicate with every person of every tribe and nation. He wants them to hear the Gospel so purposefully in their own language that they know God cares about them because He cares enough to speak it to them in their own language. Folks, the point that's being made in this story is not that we all need to speak in these unintelligible words and moving forward. Again, you don't like it. Don't argue with me. Go back and argue with Paul. I, I'm on his side. It's not necessary. It's not the way that God established the way that we should be communicating with each other or that He's going to communicate with us anymore. This is God showing His intentionality. This is God being very purposeful and saying, I died for every last one of you so much so that when these people start proclaiming the Gospel, you will hear it in your own native language. Somebody say, praise God. He cared that much about us that it wasn't just that you will hear some declaration from above. No, no, you will hear it in your own. The, the language your tribal people speak to you is the language that you will hear the good news come to you. What a beautiful statement of intentionality. The next part of the story, you know, I, I kind of misspoke just a second ago. I, I said something about it, it, not, it not being something. This is not a story meant to change the way that, that we necessarily communicate with God. And, and, and I still uh, hold to that. But let me say one edit that I'll make in this. It absolutely was to establish a new way that we hear, that we follow, that we acknowledge, that we understand what God is saying to us. Folks, in this story, there is this sudden great awareness. Not that the Holy Spirit wasn't present. By the way, please go back and read your Old Testament. Go back and read the ways that even the New Testament points back to where the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit wasn't created this day. But the way the Holy Spirit was in action on our world changes on this day. And from this point forward, it was, it was our responsibility to listen to the Holy Spirit, i.e. God guiding and directing us in our daily lives. And if there's something... If there's something about this story that, that beckons to us as the people of God to be reminded of who we are, of what we've been called to do, of how we've been called to live this life, this passage begs of us to return back to our roots of being attentive to the Holy Spirit. Of asking the Spirit of God to guide and direct us. Of asking the Holy Spirit to help us to know how to deal with these things that are going on in our lives. Of focusing on God. Folks, see how these things start tying back together. Many of you have endured great trauma, great frustrations, and your lives are in great chaos. And you want to know why? It's because you took your eye off the ball. It's because you've been looking at the potholes. It's because you've been focused on land grabbing. Are you hearing me? You've been focused on the things of this world and, and, and of this earth and not focused on the nature of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when I heard it this morning, I did not plan it this way, but I would love for our praise and worship team to come back up and to lead us in the same song that we led before we began to pray this, this morning. So if you're still here, come on back up. I want to sing this song one more time because this is the, the perfect song for us to be sent back off into this world. As a matter of fact, I'd invite you as they're moving forward, please stand with me if you would. And as we stand together, I'd invite you to ask this question. I'm really, really not trying to throw rocks here because this question applies to every one of us in the room and myself as well. The story of the Ryman Auditorium and the Cane Ridge Revival, they're not just stories about location. They're stories of people. They're stories of people who forgot what they were put on this earth to accomplish. And instead of being able to keep their eye on the target of following the Holy Spirit, they may still be proverbially swinging the bat and hoping things go well, but they've taken their eye so far off the ball that they can't hit what God put them here to hit. So my question for you this morning, in a desire to have the Holy Spirit speak to you in a greater way, for you to keep your eyes focused 
on who the Holy Spirit is. Maybe this morning you just want to kneel at an altar and say, God, help me stay focused on the Holy Spirit better than I have. Doesn't necessarily mean that you own 35 steamboats and you're running them up and down the Cumberland River selling sex and alcohol and all those things, okay? But it means this. You just simply want to know the Holy Spirit better. You want to be attentive to the Holy Spirit better. And so this morning, when we sing the words together that you are welcome here, we're not just welcoming the Holy Spirit into this room so we can look at the Holy Spirit. We're welcoming the Holy Spirit into here so that He can move us and guide us into tomorrow. The team is going to lead us in this song, and as they do, if you feel so moved to just kneel at an altar, please come down and kneel with me and pray, and then we'll close in prayer together.